Before we get started, I've got a special announcement. We received word uh, about 10 days ago that Samuel, our oldest, was selected to represent our country uh, in a soccer tournament in Europe this summer. There's a... I don't know where he is. He was just here, but... uh, So he's out practicing. Yeah, yeah, he's out practicing. So when you see him, congratulate him. We're not sure what all the details are. We know that there are a few of these all-star teams that have been selected to go play around the world. And um, uh, he was nominated and received an invitation. So all that hard work pays off. And uh, so so congratulate him when you see him on, on your way out. As we consider today's scripture today, let us, uh, let us pray. Father, as we come to you, we are thankful for your provision of salvation. We are thankful for the way that you continue to love us. We are thankful for your word, and we would ask that you would help us understand you so that we may fall deeper in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible tells us that there are many things that Jesus did, and if they were all written down, the whole world would not be able to contain the books that what he did would, uh, um, would be written. Now, I think that's a bit hyperbole, but the point remains that Jesus did an enormous amount of stuff on earth. So as we consider Jesus' work in this idea of countdown to Christmas. If we remember, we started uh, right after Thanksgiving, we considered his resurrection, considered his death. Last week, we considered his life. And today, we will consider his works. If he had so many works that can contain books that would uh, almost fill up the earth, then why, when we look in the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, When you combine them together, they might be that thick. What happened to all the other great stuff he did? Why was it lost? Or perhaps, why was it not put in there? Was there some intention behind it? Well, we know that Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit and and written by men. And so why would the Spirit um, have just a handful of, selected a handful of what Jesus did so that we may understand him. That's what we'll consider this morning. What is so special about the 34 miracles that were written in the four Gospels? Do you realize that there's only 34 of them? Now, there's several of them that have been written several times. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I think, have 15 or 16 that are of the same account. But if you were to Uh, unique miracles. There's only 34 of them recorded in the Gospels. Isn't that astonishing? Wouldn't you think there there would be more of all the things that he had done? Why them and not the others? Let's dig deep and see if we can find some clues. Understanding the purpose of these miracles will deepen our faith will cause you to shake your head in amazement 
and help you worship him evermore. And that's the reason why these miracles are so important to understand. The point of this morning, the, the, the point of the message is very simple. Jesus, the man, performed miracles to demonstrate that he was God. So worship him because there is none other like him. Now, I had to go back and think, what if a man who was unremarkable in feature, a person who looks like us, shows up one day, grows up as a little boy, and, and, and then begins to proclaim that he is God? We would think that he'd be off his rocker, think he was crazy. Would he be a lunatic? Would he be a liar? Would he be a myth or a legend? Or could he really be the Lord? There have been many, many, many people throughout history who have uh, claimed to be Jesus. I happened to come across one story. His name was Arnold Potter. He was a fellow with the uh, Latter-day Saints uh, back in the 1800s. He was a separatist. Uh, decided that the Mormons' teaching wasn't really what Jesus had in mind and started his own little thing. Claimed that he was the second coming of the Messiah. That Jesus had returned. And to prove that, to ascend into heaven, he was going to jump off a cliff. And he did. He met the fate as Wiley Coyote would meet the fate in the Bugs Bunny cartoons. And his uh, followers buried him. So what would mark a person to claim that they were God? How could you know a man or a woman, right? If they claimed they were God, how would you know that they were God? God of the Bible. Well, they would, logically, you would say, well, gosh, they, they, they would probably perform some miracles. They would do some things that nobody else could ever do. Well, Jesus did, well, he did many more than 34, but there's 34 that are recorded throughout the Gospels. 18 of them, uh, were, 18 of these miracles were on people who were socially ostracized by the Jews, and they were considered ritualistically impure. These were the people you did not want to be around. These are the people that, that when you would see them in social settings, you would walk the other way. I can't be around those people. <sighs> They're impure. We are the people of God. We go through all of these rituals in order to, to be clean. We have our sins forgiven by these uh, uh, by the blood of goats and by the blood of bulls and by the blood of these, these pigeons that were clean. If there's lepers in our community, we have a very strict guideline on how to make them clean so that they can be a part of the community. Could you imagine coming into a worship service like this and having someone tell you that you have to leave because you're not clean. And then you have to go through a purification process so that you can be in the presence 
of others. That's the way that it was. So this fellow Jesus shows up, and he starts to reach out to these people who have been ostracized. Imagine what a commotion that would be. He begins performing miracles, like healing lepers, like healing the blind and the deaf, the paralytics, and people looking around and saying, okay, who is this guy? And then he happens to be on a boat with a bunch of his disciples, the 12 of them, and there's a raging storm that is occurring. So much so that these experienced fishermen who have been in this sea for their entire life feel that their life is threatened and they're going to die. And Jesus says, be still. And the waters go from the top of the ceiling down to the floor like that. And they say, who is this guy who can command nature like this? He was a revolutionary during his time. No wonder why he got crucified. He upset every social order that you can imagine. For those who are in junior high and high school, you know those kids who sit alone at the lunch table and the other kids that are made fun of. He was the type of guy that would walk over to that person and sit down with him and befriend him. And tell them that, hey, everything is going to be okay. Don't. Don't allow your self-image to be determined by those on the other side. Allow your self-image and your self-worth and your love to be determined by me. I love you. I came to die for you. You were created in my image and my likeness. And I want to be with you forever. What soothing words could that be to people like that? So let's take a look. We're going to take a, a, a hopscotch look through all of these uh, all of these miracles. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. So if you could turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at the miracles where he healed people. And the emphasis is he is abolishing them from being socially ostracized because now they're going to be part of the family of God forever and ever and ever. And secondly, he's going to declare them as clean. Now again, if you're a, man, if you're a human being and these are the traditions you live by for centuries and centuries and centuries and there's some cat that shows up and says, hey, I forgive you of your sin. Be clean and, live and go. But who is this guy? What authority does he have to declare forgiveness of sins? What authority does he have in order to heal these people? So let's look in chapter, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, 
When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, make me clean. This guy was socially ostracized for years, perhaps decades. He hears about a a great teacher, a great prophet, someone who is that the world has never seen. And he believes that Jesus could help him. He kneels before him in a sign of worship. He says, if you will, if it's within your will, Jesus, please cleanse me. Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. Oh, you can't touch a leper. We'll see in just a minute. In Leviticus 14, there's 32 verses of regulations on how to cleanse a leper. And none of them involve touching them. It is all about (laughs) killing this animal for this sacrifice. And doing this and doing that. And all of this gyration and touching. And and, uh, um, I, I think at one point, they do touch the big toe of the leper. But it is, and Jesus just goes up and touches him. Could you imagine the witnesses around? Say, Jesus touched that guy. Now he's going to be unclean. Jesus says, bunk. And immediately his leprosy was cleaned. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest. And offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, Jesus was trying to demonstrate to the religious authorities, that is the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the, priest, the Jewish priests at the time, that you don't need to go through all of that. That Jesus is going to begin to accept those who have been ostracized for generations, those who are unclean. You don't have to go through all of the ritualistic Cleansing, because he is the cleansing agent. It's by his blood that we are cleaned or cleansed. We move quickly over into, into verse 5. And then he, uh, there's a centurion that, that comes forward. A centurion was a, was a Roman official outside of the Jewish faith. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home and he's suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and I will heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say one word that my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go. And he goes and another to come and he comes and to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, truly, I say with you that no one in Israel has, have, has found such, such a faith. And he heals the Roman guard's servant. The Jewish authorities had to be seething. You just don't do this. The very next one, he goes on to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is not doing well. She's lying sick with a fever. This is in verse 14. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose again and began to serve him. You don't do that to a woman. 
You don't do that to an outcast, and you certainly don't do that to a leper. Yet Jesus did all three of them just like that. He goes on. There, there's a paralytic that, uh, that he heals. And it was oftentimes that if, you're, if, if you had a chronic condition, particularly since birth, that it was a common thought that the reason why you were paralytic, the reason why you were blind, the reason why you were deaf since birth is because you had sinned inside the womb. And that is your punishment. That's your curse forever and ever and ever. And Jesus goes to the paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. Be healed and walk. And he got up and walked. The religious ruling authorities were sitting there and they watched it. Who has the right to forgive sins? God. Do you see now how he's claiming to be God? Do you see why he was such a revolutionary? Do you see why it might begin to uh, uh, give motivation to crucify him? Who is this guy? We move on. Not only does he show this to the Jews, but then he goes outside the Jewish territory where he heals a deaf mute. This is in Matthew chapter 9, verse 32 through 34. Here's the interesting thing. This is the first time that Jesus spits on his hands to heal the guy. He does this three times in his ministry. Now, it was common knowledge at the time outside of the uh, territory of the Jews that one of the signs of healing, if a doctor's about to heal somebody, they'd spit on their hands, and that would be a sign for everybody around, hey, something's about to happen. So Jesus spits on his hands as a signal to healing. And here's the most interesting thing. This guy is mute. He can't speak. Puts his hands on him. And this man begins to shout for joy, which is a fulfillment of prophecy back in Isaiah 35, 6. Said when the, when the messianic age arrives, the mute will shout for joy. <sighs> you see the clues that he's starting to, uh, to leave behind. Now, not only are the people of God, people of God who um, are lepers or are women, now they're welcome into the family of God. Now those outside of the nation of Israel are welcome into the family of God. How? By faith. They all by faith said, I know you're the Lord of the universe. I know you can do this. If it be your will, please have it done. And Jesus granted that wish. Not only is it for the religious ruling authorities and the, those outside of the, uh, uh, of, of the Jewish faith, the, the Gentiles, but he also had some lessons for the disciples during these healings. There was a, a blind man in uh, Bethsaida. Um, Bethsaida is a, a little outside of, of the nation of Israel, and, the, and it took him two times to touch this guy in order to, in order to um, allow the man to see. He spit on his hands, and put his hands on the guy, and he says, 
what do you see? He says, I see people, but they look like trees. Jesus said, okay. And he did it again. He made, I can see clearly. And the disciples were there and like, what is going on here? And Jesus was teaching them that right now, you can partially see. You can see these miracles and you can see what I'm doing, but you're really not fully going to get the picture until a little bit later. And of course, we see when they finally get the picture after he was resurrected and before he ascended into heaven, they're like, holy smokes, he is God. Look, you could stick, his, stick our fingers in his wrist and he is, he is here. And that is the risen Lord. He is who he says he is. Wow. And then the church is born and the rest is history. There's a scene in the book of John where a rich man has a son who is also sick. And Jesus goes and heals him. Rich people were often ostracized in, during that time as well. So you have the rich, you have women, you have those with diseases, and you have those outside of the community of God who are now all part of the family of God. And as we'll see in a few minutes, he is ushering in a new era where salvation will come to the earth through him. There are five accounts of Jesus exercising demons to demonstrate he ruled the supernatural world. There are demons. There are angels in this world. And Jesus went to demonstrate or came to demonstrate that he has complete authority over the demons. In fact, the, I think in, in each one of the five occasions, the demons cried out to, to Jesus, Lord, Lord, don't do this to us. In one particular scene, this comes out of Matthew 15, there's a Canaanite woman's daughter. So a person outside of the faith, outside of the nation of Israel, the daughter, and she could find no relief. With a mother's heart, she looked down to her last straw and saw Jesus and said, Jesus, I need you to heal my daughter. Now, he had created quite a, um, a reputation over the past few months. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus. And man, if I could just have him touch my daughter or my son or my husband or my wife or my cousin or my aunt or whoever, they'll be healed. And Jesus tested this woman and said, okay, you want to be healed? You know, we don't heal your type. In fact, you guys are like dogs to us. And dog, dog was the, um, the, the ultimate insult to the Canaanites. You're like dogs to us. I'm not going to. And she said, and she persisted. And she persisted. And Jesus finally relented and healed the daughter. And the demons fled from her. And it looks like he was testing the woman to make sure that this just wasn't like a, uh, uh, a person trying to take advantage of, of Jesus' 
sovereignty and his power. Because he's not going to heal people who don't believe who he really says he is. As we move on, he also brought back three people from dead, from the death, to demonstrate that death could not defeat him. Jairus' daughter was the first of those in Matthew 9. In fact, if you look, look with him in Matthew 9, verses, uh, verses 20. Or is that verses 18? And while he was saying these things, and behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of the blood, who 12 years came up and touched the fringe of his garment, said to him, I will, If I only touch this garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned, seeing her, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman made her well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away, this girl is not dead, but she's sleeping. And they laughed at him. <laughs> Who wouldn't, right? Who is this guy? But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, arose. And the report went out through all of the district. Jesus was trying to make the point that this ritual cleansing that needed to happen was done once and for all through he was going to replace that it was through him that people were going to be clean not through all of the rituals throughout the entire Old Testament there's another time a widow of Nain's son this comes out of Luke chapter 7 this was the same site that Elisa raised a person from the dead back during the Old Testament years, several hundred years before. This was outside of the nation of Israel. And so here he is uh, alerting people that people outside of the nation of Israel will also um, live forever, right? That, that he has the power and the authority to raise them from the dead. Thus, giving hope to the Jewish people and also to the non-Jewish people that there is eternal life. Lastly, and probably most famous, is the story of Lazarus, his friend. When he saw Lazarus, he cried. Now, the interesting part about the story is that Lazarus had been laying dead for three days. It was on the fourth day that he raised Lazarus from the dead. And according to Jewish customs, they believed that the soul left the body on the third day. So, if Jesus comes and raises him from the dead on the fourth day, it disproves that. Again, that Jesus has the authority and power to raise people from the dead whenever he chooses, wherever he chooses. 
Do you see the importance of that when we consider our faith and we look at that cross and we say, yes, he died for our sins and then he rose again on the third day. He has power over death. Lastly, <laughs> he commanded nature. To bend, uh, he commanded nature to bend to his will six times to demonstrate that he had power over the natural world. I mentioned the calming of the sea earlier. Also, what about feeding the 5,000 people? Turning those two loaves of bread and those, what, five fish? Five fish into enough to feed 5,000 people? Wouldn't that be a neat party trick? If you're a little low at a Christmas party, you just like figure it out and all of a sudden you've got more than enough to, to feed everybody? But that wasn't the primary purpose was was to feed them. The primary purpose was for Jesus to show people in that crowd that they were sheep without a shepherd. He also fed 4,000 shortly after. And those 4,000, that was primarily a Gentile crowd of folks. Again, demonstrating power and authority over nature to the Gentiles as to the Jews. Remember the time he walked on water? For those of you who know know our Bible as well, right? He's out there cruising along and Peter looks up and he's like, what are you doing? And Peter, by faith, just jumps in the water thinking he's going to walk. And then all of a sudden he's like, what? I'm walking on water and he sinks. The whole purpose of that was to demonstrate that Jesus is the I am. The great I am. I am means Yahweh which means Lord, sovereign creator of the universe, in complete control, has complete power, and is present all the time. Lastly, one of my favorites, the curse of the fig tree. On their way to uh, Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples see the fig tree. And the fig tree at the time was seen as a symbol of God's judgment. So if a fig tree was not growing, producing fruit, it was a sign of God's judgment. And in fact, that's what was happening to this fig tree. It hadn't produced any fruit. And then Jesus cursed it. And it died. It had died. And this was to signal that there was an impending disaster of judgment for the Jewish nation if they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. So do you see how deep Jesus goes with these? We often read these miracles and think, oh yeah, that's a nice story. I'm glad that that person had faith. Maybe if I have faith, maybe Jesus will produce a miracle in me. And you see, the purpose was far deeper, far grander, far more transcendent than than that. Yes, the the person's faith made them well. But Jesus was demonstrating that he was Lord over all of creation. And there was nothing that could defeat him. He was also welcoming so many people that had been ostracized for generations into the family of God because they were created in his likeness and image. And he had compassion upon them. And he wanted them to be with him forever and ever and ever. 
You see, Jesus broke through social, supernatural, and natural barriers to usher in an era where all nations, as the book of Isaiah would say in chapter 2, where all nations would come to the Lord's mountain, which could be seen as a metaphor for Jesus. For he is compassionate. And again, in Isaiah and in chapter 49, where it says the servant will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The fullness of time had come. Remember, this is our, our focus out of Galatians 4. The fullness of time had come. So God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. <sighs> now do we see the good news? Now do we see why we have hope and peace and love? Now do we see... Why we get excited and there's anticipation during this Advent season as we think about the birth of Jesus. We realize none of this would have happened if Jesus was not born. And this is the reason why we celebrate the Christmas season. And this is why we worship Him, for He is worthy to be worshiped. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you, let our minds be amazed of your works. Let our hearts be captivated by your compassion for those who are cast aside by society and welcome into your family. And Lord, let that drive us to our knees as it drove that leper to his knees that one day, saying, Lord, cleanse me if it be your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.